Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we will be exploring a newly identified altered state of consciousness known as meditation-induced near-death experience. My guest is Dr. William Van Gordon, who is a psychologist and lectures and conducts research in psychology at the University of Derby in England. He has also uh, been a Buddhist monk for 10 years and received uh, Buddhist ordinations from different schools, including the highest Buddhist monastic ordinations in the Theravada Buddhist tradition. He is on the editorial board of several journals, including Mindfulness and Mindfulness and Compassion. In addition, he has published over a hundred academic papers and is the co-editor of two anthologies, one titled Mindfulness and Buddhist-Derived Approaches to Mental Health and Addiction, and also The Buddhist Foundations of Mindfulness. Once again, this interview is being conducted on the internet. Dr. Van Gordon is in Italy. And now I will switch over to the internet video. Welcome, William. It's a pleasure to be with you. You've done some fascinating research. I think you're breaking new ground, and you also bring to the research some very interesting credentials, since you yourself have been uh, an ordained Buddhist monk for 10 years. That's right, Jeff. It's uh, nice nice to join you. And um, yes, my... My prior experience obviously um, informs the the direction of uh, of my research. Now you have identified an I'll call it an altered state of consciousness, uh, which uh, has never, to my knowledge, been discussed before in the literature. The meditation induced near death experience. So I think uh, we we should start by talking about the definition of that state of consciousness and something about the uh, history of this tradition within Buddhism. Okay. Yes, I think I think this was the first kind of study under formal research conditions to to identify and investigate this phenomenon um, and and the background if you like um, yeah stems from Buddhist philosophy and from Buddhist practice where there exists a number of ancient texts that allude to this condition that allude to the possibility of using meditation to gain insight into death. And some more contemporary Buddhist writers, such as the Dalai Lama, have, have also made reference to the use of meditation in this context. Uh, apparently, though, when you recruited meditators for your research, you were looking for people who had not only uh, read allusions to the practice, but were actually rather well versed in it. Exactly, and that um, that was uh, recruiting those participants was easier said than done mm-hmm. because um, actually, there's no formal definition, no formal criteria for recruiting. Um, an advanced meditator, and we see advanced meditators um, taking part in in research more and more these days. But um, it, it's actually a challenge to find those individuals where we can where we can be sure, where we can have confidence that they are actually um, tapping into a, a genuine and altered uh, state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for that reason, the, the recruitment window for this study remained open for, for 12 months. That was just to give us enough time to recruit um, um, individuals who, who met our 
inclusion criteria. And the criteria, as I recall from reading your paper, included that they had to agree to engage in this particular practice of the meditation-induced near-death experience at least once a year, which suggests that they've already received instruction in the practice. That's exactly right. So, um, really, we were we were looking to investigate, to observe um what happened when um, participants underwent this practice? But um, we didn't want them to, to. We didn't want to force them to to undergo this practice. They 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 had to already be planning to undergo it naturally mm-hmm. and yeah, as an as an ongoing in practice because we wanted to see over the the course of the three year how three years how their um, how their perspective how they experienced changed while um, inducing a near-death experience using meditation. So earlier you talked about the ancient texts alluding to this as a possibility, but it sounds as if in addition to the ancient texts, there must have been lineages where the practice was uh, well understood and there must be stages and preparation and uh, follow-up and uh, a rather extensive uh, I guess I'd call it a pedagogy you know, surrounding the practice. I, I think that's right. I think that's right. This, it's important to stress this is, this is an, a very advanced form of practice. And I think in some cases, individuals are taught the specific components of how to induce that state of meditation. Yet for other participants, I think, um, I think just in reaching a, um, a, a very advanced stage of meditative development, I, I think they begin to understand how to elicit that experience themselves. I think it, it's something that it's a direction that um, that they go in naturally uh, mm. through the meditation when they reach a certain stage, I believe. Perhaps without even the necessity of specific instruction. I think so. I think so. Mm-hmm. Have you yourself engaged in this practice? Um, yes, I, I've attempted to um, to experience um, altered states of, of of consciousness through meditation, including this one, as a means of um, as a means of improving my understanding of my own mind of. Of reality, um, and, and and of meditative practice more more generally. So did you have an instructor who you worked with? I I had an instructor, but in my case, um, the the focus was actually on a on a slightly different um, altered state of consciousness of consciousness, um, which is generally referred to as emptiness, eliciting the experience of emptiness in meditation. Mm-hmm. And, and it was through that route um, that I was able to um, direct the meditation to start focusing on, on what um, what type of processes might unfold when we when we when we reach the point when, when we have to leave this body. Now, I understand that you recruited the uh, participants from several different schools of Buddhism. So I presume that the instructions these meditators received uh, may were probably different. That's precisely right. So this was very much a, a, a trans-Buddhist approach to uh, studying this phenomenon. And, and, and you're exactly right. The, the routes those participants had taken um, in order to um, practice this technique were, were very different. Did you make a point of uh, understanding those differences? Not, not, not particularly. Our, our, our focus was on um, whether the whether the experience of the meditation-induced near-death experience was was genuine, rather than the particular route they'd taken in order to 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 develop or induce it. Um, and and I would envisage actually that um, there are individuals outside of, of of Buddhist practice who can also 
um, engage in in this practice. But but that was kind of beyond the scope of mm-hmm. the study this time. Of course, there were a wide variety of uh, shamans and mediums yeah. and yeah. spiritualists of different kinds who who yeah. uh, purport to have abilities of uh, in a wide variety of means for uh, communicating with what we might call the bardo planes. Um, now, and the classic near-death experience is described by Raymond Moody and now many other researchers, uh, is a, a seems to be a very distinct syndrome, uh, now well identified in the medical and psychological literature, and it's often life-changing. People who have near-death experiences sometimes just say their life was changed dramatically and instantaneously, uh, is, I would think it would be different for people who've been practicing meditation for 20 or 30 years. I think so. I think so. But I, I think there are some some overlaps. I think the um, participants in, in, this, in this study, they reported that one of their primary reasons for engaging in this practice was, to, was very much to, to change their perspective on life. To help them understand that um, all things are impermanent, that um, it's a good idea to make kind of full use of their time here, including preparing for what happens when their time here comes to an end. So it, it is life changing, but it's it's more of a gradual, progressive process. And I think by the time they they encounter this experience for the first time they're they're probably much more prepared for it it's it's an anticipated experience rather than um a surprise experience which is often the case in 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 a traditional uh, near-death experience i gather that the purpose of your study it was a three-year longitudinal study is uh, to document what the experience is like and also to document what impact it has on the meditators who practice it exactly and and also another component was to to document how it how it might change over time really to see whether whether it's a a learnable experience, whether it's an experience that can be practiced and perfected over time. And and the findings indicated that that it was indeed that that kind of the profoundity of the near-death experience and the profoundity of the the benefits associated with the experience increased over time. But let's go into some detail then about the recruitment process. That's r- really where it began, I gather. Sure. Well, um, as we mentioned before, this was a, a, a kind of trans-Buddhist approach to recruitment. So we were interested in really recruiting individuals that could genuinely elicit this experience. And one of the criteria, one of the um, inclusion criteria was um, assessing their, um, their not, not only their general meditative experience, but whether they um, met kind of the cutoff point on the near-death experience scale. So whether they uh, reported a certain degree of conformity to what we understand to be a, a regular near-death experience. Um, and it wasn't only um, um, Buddhist monastics who we were interested in. There were there were lay practitioners, um, but as I as I indicated before, I, I think a key challenge in this study and any study working with advanced meditators is meditators is how to, how to actually get round um, the the challenge mm. of. Um, of being certain that that um, that sample, that study sample, is is genuine in terms of, of the experience under investigation. Because advanced meditators, there is no certificate, there's no academic qualification. Even if they're the head of some long-standing Buddhist Buddhist lineage, that in itself is not um, is not proof of meditative genuine meditative experience. And so, I think whenever we look. At, at findings working with advanced meditators that 
Um, that's a potential limitation, a potential limitation we, we need to be aware of. You mentioned in, in your paper, for example, that uh, the number of years a person spends practicing meditation is not uh, necessarily a good indicator of how advanced they are in their practice. I think, I think that's right. I think, I think it could be uh, a person has one year of experience 20 times rather than 20 years of experience where they've continued to go deeper and deeper into the practice. And I think, I think that's, um, that specific point you've raised there is, um, is very relevant. Now there's a, a great deal of interest in meditation research, a great deal of interest in, in, in meditation and in teaching meditation. And, and yes, and, and, um, caution therefore as to, as to what, what constitutes being genuinely experienced is needed. But conversely, even, even after just one or two years of experience, I think it's possible for people to move quickly in, in their progress and, and definitely have something genuine to share. Because you yourself are, uh, have, have, done an enormous amount of meditative practice and are, and your fellow researchers, I presume, uh, as well. So you're connected to a network of Buddhist teachers and monasteries and so on that you utilized in recruiting. Precisely. That's, um, exactly the route we took rather than kind of just advertise, um, to the general public openly. And um, have you had this experience? We decided um, to be more purposeful in recruitment uh, and recruit through networks and, and extended networks of practitioners um, um, and kind of through word of mouth through the, the Buddhist practicing um, wider community. You worked with uh, meditation teachers that you've known for a long time and that you trust and ask them to refer people that they regarded as advanced practitioners. Precisely. That was one, one means of recruitment. And, um, and, and those individuals were in turn asked to, to pass on the message to other meditation teachers they felt were, 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 were very good mm -hmm. at assessing meditation experience and, and it, and it, um, unfolded in that manner. So using that network, I gather you got about 30 or 40 applicants and eventually they were narrowed down to about a dozen. That's right. So um, um, some of them uh, didn't meet all of the inclusion criteria, which, which even in some cases was just an, um, a, a lack of proficiency in English language. Um, so they may have had a very um, a, a genuine experience to share, but um, we, 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 we set the criteria to be as rigorous as possible in a preliminary study of this nature. Um, uh, some individuals didn't didn't want to to be involved, and, and we have to respect that choice. Um, so eventually, we yes, we we filtered down to twelve participants. Mm -hmm. And because uh, you mentioned you administered the, uh, I believe, uh, Dr. Bruce Grayson's scale for the intensity of the near death experience, it's widely recognized uh, as a, a standard. Uh, measurement of uh, near-death experience. So you're looking for people who have already uh, completed the practice at least once. Exactly, yes. And these are people who have already um, engaged in that in that practice. They're already familiar with it and can therefore um, provide some feedback on what they experienced um, during the last um, the last engagements mm -hmm. in the meditation-induced near-death experience. Is it the case that uh, some of them may have practiced it many, many times, and other people only once? I think so. There was some uh, some some diversity. I think um, in in the number of times they practiced, but everyone had had at least engaged in it, engaged in the practice. Previously, once you had your uh, pool of applicants, then then they were all subjected not only to the uh, Grayson scale for intensity of near death experience, but also a number of other psychological batteries. That's right. We administered um, a number of other tests. Um, one of which was to assess mystical experiences in, in general. Another was to assess 
non-attachment, um, which is a an interesting um, uh, psychometric test. It's assessing the degree to which the individual is attached to external phenomena, to uh, to their experiences, but therefore it's also assessing the extent to which they're attached to themselves. Um, it's it's almost a measure of of, of ego attachment, um, which in, in the traditional Buddhist literature is deemed to be to be a very important measure of of well-being of of and also of insight as well. You know, as I think about it, it's been about um, twenty or thirty years since I first interviewed a um, Buddhist meditator, and at that time, it was about the application of Buddhist meditation and psychotherapy. And it, uh, I'm not a practicing Buddhist myself, although I might look like one. But uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, my sense is that what's happened in the last 30 years or so is, is that the integration of Buddhist philosophy and Western psychology has, has made enormous progress. You yourself have edited several anthologies in, in that area. Yes, there's been, there's, there's been a huge, um, huge development in, in recent decades. Um, a, a huge, um, joining of um, of, of scientific and, and traditional contemplative um, practice, and I think I think there's some really important insights that have come out of that, including in the kind of psychotherapy context, but not only that, um, in, in other contexts too, in in terms of understanding a general reality, in terms of understanding the mind, and, and I think I think there's much more to come, Jeff. Actually, I think. I think it's at the intersection of of, of science, of traditional um, scientific approaches, and and contemplative practice, where where, where we where we're hopefully going to see mm-hmm. some some more groundbreaking insights. Mm-hmm. In terms of our understanding of the mind and of reality. I presume, for example, the test you administered relating to non-attachment came out of this uh, matrix of Buddhist psychology. That's precisely right. Yes, that scale is is kind of built on a a a Buddhist kind of uh, meditation model and a Buddhist um, well being model, and and um, uh, and that and that scale is being used kind of more more and more now, which is which is nice to see, including in in, in, in clinical contexts, we're starting to see a um, strong association between. Um, being less attached to ourselves and and well-being, mm-hmm. so it's a very different model of self of ego that and um, that type of scale is introducing to uh, the, the scientific and the psychological community compared to uh, traditional psychological conceptions of self. So you have uh, about a dozen advanced meditators who have uh, passed all of your criteria and uh, have been administered these batteries of tests. Uh, then what happened in your study? Okay, so um, then um, the meditators were asked to um, contact us at the point when they were going to engage in the meditation-induced near-death experience. And um, that time point was to be chosen at their leisure. Um, We asked them to continue with the practice that they would otherwise be making, rather than engage in a new practice specifically for the purposes of this research. There are some um, kind of ethical reasons for for following that approach. And um, then just before... The, the meditation-induced near-death experience, they, they filled in, uh, they completed the, the psychometric tests we've, we've just discussed. They completed them again just after. And they were also asked to engage in two other forms of meditation, which were used as, as a control condition. So that was a meditation in which they contemplated death, but didn't induce the near-death experience. And a meditation... Um, in which they they just practice standard kind of concentrative and mindfulness techniques, just so we had a, a, a comparison. 
Um, and they were asked to contact us again before and after those. I think there was a 24-hour window in which they were um, uh, in, in requested to, to contact us. And, and that process continued uh, for, for three years. So if I'm a meditator and I'm about to induce one of these practices, either the control practice or the meditation-induced near-death experience practice, how, how long would those practices last? Would it be uh, minutes, hours, days, weeks? Uh, I think for, um, for this group of, of participants, um, it, it was between 40 minutes and two hours, sometimes two and a half hours of kind of conventional time. Um, um, that was, that was the reported duration window. But interestingly, whilst I'm engaged in the meditation induced near death experience, um, their kind of their, their perspective on time and how long they'd been um, engaged in the practice differed um, or, or, or changed considerably. If I were to engage in that practice, uh, let's suppose that I'm an advanced meditator and I, I wish to engage in that practice, how much time would I need to set aside? Okay, well, um, obviously even even for advanced meditators, I think there are some there are some differences in in how quickly they can elicit that experience it could be it could depend on kind of how much meditations normal meditation they'd done in the foregoing days mm-hmm. how how settled and focused the mind was but i think it would be possible um under the right conditions to to uh, enter into that state of meditation um and, and complete that experience within um within an hour in some cases in, in other cases uh, within a few hours um, okay. for, the, for the right mm-hmm. uh, participant. Are, are there other preparations required, like a di- dietary, for example, or uh, physical postures or exercises? That, that wasn't something we picked up um, as, as a key observation. Um, there, is, there are preparatory meditation practices, however, that we did um, report on, um, and, and the kind of the route to inducing the, um, near-death experience was, was, was twofold. The first kind of phase involved focusing, um, and, and concentrating the mind, um, really to, to, to collect it, um, and to, um, yeah, to, to eliminate any distractions that, that there might be. And, and then followed a phase of what, what I refer to as investigative meditation. Um, which is, which is, which really involves letting go of, of the self, um, transcending the self. And, and, and from that point, um, the, the meditation can practitioner can, can, move their meditation in in several different directions including um towards um, completely or almost completely letting go of their 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 connection with with their body mm-hmm. um and um and 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 then they can start to engage properly in 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 the near-death experience. The near-death experience, especially as described in Raymond Moody's initial book on the subject, Life After Life, has a very distinct features like going through a tunnel, uh, being accompanied by uh, what might seem to be a- a- other spiritual entities that serve as guides, um, sometimes encountering uh, deceased relatives or friends. And, and, and from a parapsychological point of view, it's especially interesting when those encounters include individuals that the experiencer didn't even know were deceased. Uh, are those the sorts of things that your meditators also reported? Yeah, yes. There was... Um there was a, there was a, bit, a good degree of um, of crossover between between the two kind of forms of near death experience, the conventional and the, and the one induced by meditation, and there were also some differences. But sure, out of body experiences, 
and and meeting kind of non-worldly entities um, and an altered perception of time and space. These are um, these are components that are common to, to both forms of near-death experience. Um, yeah, and, and also being the, the, the capacity to to review one's life. Um, there is an interesting a difference there in that in the case of the, the the participants of this study, they they had rather than a lifetime review, which is a, a kind of a standard near death experience, mm-hmm. they had a lifetimes review, um, uh, which was interesting, and. Um, and there are there are also uh, some some differences as well. I think um, one one key difference was um, for the, the the Buddhist meditators in this study was actually understanding that the the content of their near death experience was in effect. Um, Mind generated. They, they, they were more interested in the, in the nature of the near death experience rather than, rather than the content of it. Um, and, and they use those type of insights to understand more about the nature of their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a really, a, a fascinating insight from my own perspective was that, um, they, they saw that that experience, the near death experience was mind made it was of the nature of emptiness it was it was real but yet it was empty of of inherent existence which is the same type of um which is the the same nature that unfolds in the in the dream state and and those meditators in this study and in and in another study i've um recently conducted went one step further and they and they posited that um, we could use that same type of perspective of of seeing those kind of altered states of consciousness as mind made, the dream state and the near death experience state, and, and even apply that to waking state consciousness. They they asserted that things might not exist in in the real world in in precisely the manner that. We think they exist. Things might not be quite as real as 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 we've been led or as we've led ourselves mm. to believe, and that's uh, that was an interesting insight from my perspective. Did that surprise you? It it, it didn't surprise me, um, but it surprised me that um, that was an observable outcome from this specific form of meditation i i anticipated that um the the kind of the the outcomes that we reported ultimately would be very content focused in the sense that okay there is this phase followed by that that phase and participants do experience this and this and that but um very much the emphasis was was on the nature that the wider nature of the experience um and i and i was Pleased that that outcome um, was observable through um, uh, through the, the the recorded transcripts. I presume that you weren't really looking for anything of a parapsychological nature in this particular study. I think we were we were open minded as to what um, what outcomes might be. Um, experience so it wasn't a, a specific focus mm-hmm. of, of the study we did use the, the a, a, a mysticism scale to, to, to try and tap into parapsychological experiences um, but an interesting um, kind of dialogue that emerged from this study is that um, these participants were um, experience seeing what we would um, deem to be a mystical or, or parapsychological experiences yet they didn't consider them as such for those participants um, mystical was normal mm-hmm. it was um, it, it, it's only mystical mystical because it's um, perhaps not an experience that uh, the wider population encounters on, on, a, on a frequent mm-hmm. basis. 
I mean, for example, did any of your meditators report uh, communication with specific deceased individuals? Yes, yes. Um, there was there was communication with um, with both individuals that uh, that they didn't know, but also with individuals that they did know. Um, so there was a communication with um, kind of. Uh, recently deceased beings with beings from other other realms um, friendly realms and not so friendly realms reported um, but some participants reported um, communication with a former with their former teacher who mm. who had had since departed or I think in some cases may may not have departed um, and that was a that was a specific um, yeah, a dialogue with a known individual. A known living individual. I think so in some cases, yes. And, and also a known deceased individual. I, I see. So when the meditators report to you that these are not so different from dream experiences, it does raise a question of uh, ontology. I mean, if did they think that those communications with deceased individuals were a product of their own mind only? Okay, so I think um, I think what they were alluding to is that rather than rather than the near death experience in, experience being like a dream, mm -hmm. they were alluding to to a view, a Buddhist perspective that in fact what what we deem to be waking reality it is almost like a, a shared dream. It, it, it doesn't exist in the in inherent sense of the word. Um, if we tried to find something that we could call the present moment, we, we would never find it. And, and, there's, and there's some scientific kind of foundations to that too. So obviously there, there, there could be an... Um, a form of ontological conditioning through which they they interpret their experience, but I, I believe that certainly from the Buddhist perspective, the the the, the belief in um, a non inherently existing reality it is deemed to be an ultimate belief. It's deemed to to uh, it seemed to stem from genuine meditative insight, um, and, and, and therefore it seemed to kind of transcend beliefs, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. It does, but of course, from a research perspective, it also raises the, the question you referred to a conditioned, ontological conditioning. And another way to think of it might be, uh, that what they're engaged in is a process not so different from hypnosis. And since these people have been steeped in Buddhist philosophy, they, they have in effect been, uh, hypnotized to uh, report experiences that would be consistent with, uh, that uh, all of the suggestions that they've received to that effect over many years. Of course, of course. And, um, and any, any study um, of this nature, um, as, a, as, a, as a scientist, as a researcher, one has to um, understand that the, the, the kind of the generalizability of this, of these findings may not extend beyond this specific group of Buddhist meditators because of their conditioning. But then again, if, if the, the beliefs that they've been fed um, as part of their training stemmed from an accurate portrayal of reality, then, then it could be that they're, 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 tap, they're, they're tapping into um, accurate beliefs that to a certain degree, uh, transcend that conditioning. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I guess one could one could uh, look at that outcome either way. Um, mm -hmm. I think one one important um, outcome from this study is that um, there were some differences from the 
from the conventional NDE. Um, but I think those are, are arguably explained by the fact in, in this study participants retained volitional control over their near-death experience. So um, they were able to almost direct um, yeah, or direct it to a certain degree. And I think inevitably, if, if one's able to delve deeper into the near-death experience um, and to do so um, uh, uh, volitionally, um, then, then, it, then it's likely there will be some, some, some new insights to report. This practice continued for three years with the meditators engaging in the practice at least once a year. I assume some of them perhaps did it several times a year. Absolutely, yes. There, there was a um, um, difference in, in the, the kind of frequency, the annual frequency with, with which they engaged in this practice. Um, but we asked them to, um, to report outcomes um, linked to the first time within uh, within that twelve month period that they engaged in the practice, and mm. to do that for each year. Yeah. After uh, three years of collecting data, uh, what what conclusions were you able to draw? So we 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 observed a um, a, a statistically significant um, kind of improvement in you like if you like in um, the profundity of the near-death experience um, in terms of how it increased over time, um, as well as in, in the kind of profundity of the, the associated experiences. Yet, um, interestingly, the profundity of the near-death experience was not associated with the duration of the meditation. Um, so one might think that the longer a, a participant is engaged in this practice, kind of the, the deeper they're going to go into um, in, into the, the, the near-death experience itself. If they were engaged for three hours rather than one hour, one might envisage they'd, they'd have uh, more to report. Um, and yet that wasn't, that wasn't the case. There was no um, significant relationship observed in that case, which which is perhaps consistent with um, the understanding, both in, um, in 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 the traditional and the conventional near death experience and in the, the meditation induced near death experience, that actually this this practice this process involves transcending um, conventional understandings of time and. And space. There is no time um, when engaged in, in this practice. In the literature of, of these kinds of experiences, if in a shamanistic tradition, for example, the, the shaman might be engaged in various forms of healing work or rescue work, saving lost souls or helping pe other people through their transition and in what we could call the Bardo Plains. Uh, your meditators seem to report I believe what you said is that they they were really more interested in studying the nature of their mind it, itself. Uh, did did they report any other shamanistic like activities? Yes, yes, they did. They did report um, those type of um, experiences and those type of con contacts mm -hmm. um, in order to. Um, derive specific insights, specific spiritual insights for themselves or spiritual insights to share with others. And, and yet, um, and, and so content was an important um, aspect for them, secondary only to um, understanding the nature of that content. This is really getting interesting, I have to say. And, and, and you mentioned earlier that instead of having a life review, they had a, a review of many lives, in, in other words, past lives, previous incarnations. Exactly, yes. So that was, um, that was a slight difference between the two forms of near-death experience. Yes, it was a lifetime's review. And um, I believe uh, some participants also... And reported being able to 
um, uh, to see things in the other direction, to 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 look forward in time as as well, which which added kind of further um, support to to their report that um, in this state of consciousness that that there isn't any time mm. and there isn't a, any space. And, and, and as we understand it, if one were to pursue your research paradigm further, it, it could involve, you know, detailed exploration of what uh, the Buddhists call the Bardo planes. And, and we might learn it might be like the equivalent of discovering whole new continents. I, I think you're I think you're I think you're right. I think um, um, there's a lot of um, a lot of directions we can take this research in in order to yeah to to explore investigate those buddhist concepts further mm-hmm, mm-hmm. do you have plans for further research yes yes mm-hmm. um this was um I, I, the, the first kind of uh, formal investigation of this phenomena under research conditions and yeah, we uh, based on the on the value of those insights. It's important, I feel, to to pursue pursue that further. And actually, um, one one other study has been conducted, um, and uh, and that and that paper's been been written up. So we're hoping that that will 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 find its way through to publication soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 more studies are planned. I think we need to really now focus on on precisely how and if. And, and why this type of near-death experience differs from the conventional near-death experience. Uh, we need to, to address some of the, the limitations of this study and, um, and, and kind of devise more focused, more accurate measures for um, yeah, evaluating what, what happens in the meditation-induced near-death experience. How much meditation experience is required before somebody could begin to enter into this practice? Okay, um, I think it's not it's not so much about years spent in training. It's about it's about quality of meditation experience, and it's also about I suppose that individuals propensity for spiritual insight i think some individuals for whatever reason are are just more inclined to progress quickly in meditation compared to others but i think i think with um with the right focus and i think i think there really has to be um you know almost a, a complete dedication towards um meditative and contemplative practice I think with that in place, um, I think there's a very, very, very small minority of advanced meditators who could potentially, potentially elicit this experience after a few years. I think in most cases, though, it's, it's going to be beyond a decade um, of, of very focused um, uh, contemplated practice in, in, in reality. Do you think it's possible for non-Buddhist meditators, let's just say uh, Hindu yoga meditators, to uh, participate in the kind of study that you're doing? Um, yes, I do, and in fact, that's that's um, a direction I've been I've been discussing with some colleagues in in, in opening this up and in in taking it onto a, a trans-religious plane, um, and yeah, and and um, and therefore. Uh, being able to recruit a greater number of participants and, and being able to mm-hmm. explore further this ontological conditioning question. Yeah. Um, but, but I certainly think there are, um, other, other individuals outside of Buddhism who are, um, elicit, who can elicit this experience and, and the, and the specific components of it. And I think, I think if you've trained in, in contemplative practice, regardless of your of your background, then um, I think by the time it, it comes, by the time you reach a point where you can um, uh, foster this experience, I, I think you're you're likely to have a very different set of experiences to report 
um, or, or at least to relate to the experience differently than an individual mm-hmm. um, that's kind of been thrown into it due to some uh, unfortunate uh, traumatic I- event. And I think that um, that's an yeah, that's an other important point to yeah. bear in mind. D- uh, did you conduct in-depth interviews with your participants at the end of uh, the three-year period? Um, the the interview actually was principally conducted in in year one Hmm. so this was a a qualitative and a quantitative study the quantitative assessments continued 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 for three years the the in-depth qualitative interview was primarily conducted in in year one Mm -hmm. after they've had at least one experience uh, uh, immediately after they'd had um, the experience. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, did you drive any specific conclusions then from those in-depth interviews? Yes, there was um, a, a, a series of um, themes that seemed to be consistent across um, all participants' accounts, um, which um, which alluded to almost a phasic process in which the, the near-death experience unfolded. It, it initiated with um, a process of what participants referred to as um, letting go of, of their connection to the, to the elements, um, to, the, to the elements of, um, in their words, of earth, of water, of wind that comprise uh, the body, um, and then, um, I think the next phase they reported was um, an altered perception of time and space, moving beyond time and space um, into this experience of of emptiness of self. And um, yet, interestingly, um, through understanding they were they were empty of an inherently existing self, that they, they they also understood by default that they were full of all things. Uh, that they were connected deeply to all things, that there was, that they didn't exist in, 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 in isolation and in, in separation from everything else around them, but were, were deeply connected to all things around them. So it was a, an emptiness of self and a fullness of em- everything was the next phase that they, um, they experienced. And, and after that followed, um, encounters with, um, non-worldly beings. Um, uh, lifetimes review and, and the other kind of components we've, we've been discussing today. Now, normally in the near-death experience, there is a point at which the individual has a choice to remain uh, in in the uh, transcendental state or to return to physical life back in their body. I, I assume that that was never an issue for your meditators. Uh, yeah, that was reported as an outcome, but in a very different context to the conventional NDE. The, the meditators reported just leaving the, 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 the most tiniest kind of thread of contact between um, their near-death experience mind state or their near-death experience body and their physical worldly body. Um, and, and they used that thread in order to return to their, their worldly body when they felt they'd um, reached the end of that particular practice. So I, d- I don't think in this case not returning was, a, was ever an option. It was a case of how long um, they were going to um, stay in that specific um, meditative state and in, until they'd um, derive whatever kind of spiritual insights they felt were important at that at that stage. Now you use the word thread, and I'm not clear whether you meant it as a metaphor or as perhaps something uh, tangible. Because I know in the out of body literature, there's sometimes reference made to uh, what they call the silver cord connecting what some people describe as the astral body to the physical body. Did you mean something like that? Participants didn't report in this study a a a, a, a physical or a, a thread of of made of light. They they used the word um, a, a connection. I've I've interpreted that as as a thread. I I think it was more um, just just some form of loose connection 
um, to, re to remind them that actually uh, this was a practice uh, and not the real thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in fact, they, they did report that um, whilst they, they weren't aware of what was happening around their physical worldly body during the near-death experience, in the event it was kind of subjected to a sudden change of, of temperature or, or it was um, feeling uh, suddenly feeling discomfort that would that would draw them back mm -hmm. um, so so yeah a loose connection in that sense also in the near-death experience it's sometimes reported if if a patient is in a hospital perhaps in surgery they often see themselves like positioned at the ceiling of the operating room looking down and seeing their body and seeing the doctors around them did your meditators report anything of that sort something something similar um they reported being aware of two two bodies they reported being aware of their near death experience body and of being aware of their their, their physical worldly body body but not in the sense of kind of hovering over it and and observing um what what was happening it was um just an awareness that that body was there and i i understand that they were able to um kind of shift their awareness uh, to focus more on on the the, the near death experience body um and 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 also if need be to shift that awareness back to focus on their on their worldly body but they had kind of volitional control over that and and their focus was was uh, as i understand it on um on their near death experience body mm -hmm. um, mostly now one would assume i would assume that uh, some of the ancient texts like the uh, tibetan book of the dead for example was written on the basis of uh, reports from advanced meditators uh, or perhaps the author uh, himself uh, had had these direct experiences and uh, reported on them I, I i presume that's the way buddhist tradition holds these uh, texts that, that's uh, precisely right in um, in in traditional Buddhist contexts, um, the the kind of the, the experiences reported by a, a a meditation master were 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 received with great value by um, Buddhist participants, and we've we've almost seen um, a, a reversal in terms of the value placed. On specific forms of evidence, if you consider the mm -hmm. the kind of the the evidence uh, pyramid that uh, we often um, come across in in traditional scientific um, um, research uh, settings, now um, the the opinion of of an expert is it comes at the bottom of of the pyramid, whereas um, evidence from in the form of data from randomised control trials would would be deemed to be the most um, uh, the most reliable form of evidence, but um, in in the traditional Buddhist setting and in other traditional contemplative settings, uh, um, the insights of um, of a meditation of a spiritual master were were awarded the the, the greatest amount of value. And you're precisely right um, that kind of body of, um, of 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 textual insights. Uh, stems from um, experiences shared by such meditation master. Uh, in a way, what you're doing reminds me of uh, William James' notion of radical empiricism, that uh, uh, these kinds of experiences are not normally thought of as empirical evidence, but you're taking them as such. And uh, it seems to me that there there is good philosophical justification for that uh, from uh, American pragmatic philosophy uh, as well as <laughs> Buddhist philosophy. Yes, I think I think there are there are um, um, robust empirical methods we can apply to investigate and, and explore these types of um, um, altered states of consciousness. Um, and, and I and I think those kind of methods are always developing. I think they're becoming more accepted. Um, I think there's a number of new qualitative 
methods that have emerged that we can apply in addition to quantitative approaches. I think um, it would be nice um, actually to explore what's happening happening um, neurologically while individuals are engaged in this practice. And I think that's one of the potential benefits or potential kind of um, uh, yeah, p- potential interesting ways in which we can develop mm-hmm. this research because with a conventional near-death experience, it's that there's a lot of ethical issues and logistical challenges associated with um, with monitoring neurological activity while this um, experience is, in, is unfolding. But with the meditation-induced near-death experience, because um, participants can um, elicit that experience voluntarily, then there is scope for for investigating using um, yeah, yeah using other other techniques, which is an interesting future uh, direction. Uh, and I assume that you haven't yet uh, moved in that direction. We're moving we're moving in that direction uh, currently. That is um, yeah a, a study I'm, I'm currently um, uh, planning out and um, and um, and recruiting the right research team. In order to, yeah, in order to, um, in order to take to take the research mm-hmm. forward. Yeah. Well, William Van Gordon, this has been very exciting. I think you're doing groundbreaking research, and I can well imagine that uh, 20 years from now we'd be able to look back and see that there's been considerable progress uh, along the lines that you were, have pioneered. Thank you so much for being with me. It's been lovely to talk to you, Jeff. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Thank you.